Good morning again, church. Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Going to be hitting the same text we did last week, but this time we'll be getting the second half. Um, So Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, the title of the sermon is Real Christian Unity, part 6. And once you're at Romans 15, verse 1, if you are physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, uh, we ask that you would. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, Now, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind And one voice. Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers, and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we just... Thank you for your word. We thank you for you giving it to us. We thank you for the fact that all of us have access to the Bible in our language, that we could read it, and that you give us the Holy Spirit so that we could understand your word. I pray, God, the Holy Spirit, that you would fill us this morning, that you would give all of us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word. Lord, that you would remove me as much as possible so that I don't mess this up, Lord, but that, that we just get your word right and that your word goes forth with your power. Lord, we pray that your people will be shaped and conformed to your image, Jesus, that we will imitate you as our text calls us to. Lord, we pray if anybody doesn't know you, that they will hear your gospel today and that you would, you would transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light, that you would save them on this day. And we just pray in everything, God, that you would be glorified. So it is in Jesus' name that we pray all of this to your glory, God, and it's in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. In Psalm 133, verse 1, King David wrote this. He wrote, How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. Now that's a beautiful statement. And it's one that not only comes from the heart of King David, but also from the heart of God. God desires that his people would be united in love. Jesus Christ, our Lord, he prayed this in John 17. In John 13, 35, he told his disciples that the world would know that we are his disciples by our love. Jesus told the Father in prayer 
in John 17, verses 20 and 21, that the world would believe that the Father sent Jesus if they saw our unity with each other and our unity with God. So this is extremely important. We're supposed to be united. And yet the church as a whole is not united. And even in local churches, you will have factions and cliques that display disunity all the time. All of that undermines God's will and Christ's desire for the church. And look, this isn't just a current problem. It happened in the Corinthian church of the first century, and it happened in the Roman church as well. Paul wrote the book of Romans to fix this problem. This problem of disunity is so corrosive that the only thing that can fix it is the gospel and living in accordance with the gospel. That is why in Romans, the first 11 chapters were a robust gospel presentation explaining how the gospel saves both Jews and Gentiles and makes us one body together. And then that's also why chapters 12 and 13 were about how the gospel changes our lives. We become living sacrifices that use our gifts for each other. We become people that love each other because that fulfills the law. Okay, then all of that rolls into chapter 14, verse 1, (coughs) all the way to 15, verse 13. And that addresses how the gospel specifically fixes the problem of disunity. It's so important that Paul packed a lot of material in this section. This is the sixth sermon that I've done on this which lets us know just how important this issue is. And for some of you, you'll be happy to hear this. This will be the final sermon on the subject of church unity because then Paul's going to move on to other stuff after this, okay? But pretty much this morning, we're going to wrap up his teaching on how to stop foolish divisions in the church, okay? So we are in the final part of the section, which is chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Last Sunday, we looked at the first six verses. Today, we finish it. So the point of the text then, since I'm still dealing with the same passage, is the same as it was last week. It's this. It's that for the sake of church unity, we must bear one another's weaknesses. That's what this is about. For the sake of church unity, we must, and I put it in all caps, we must bear one another's weaknesses. Now, how can we do this? Paul tells us how with two commands in this text. First, he commands us to please each other. That's verses 1 through 6. And then he commands us to accept each other. It's verses 7 through 13. Now, last time we covered the first command. And so if you missed it, you could catch it on our webpage or you could go to sermonaudio.com and you could find it there. But just a short summary, we were told that we bear each other's weaknesses Okay, we do this in order to build others up in the church. And so the way we do this is by not pleasing ourselves, by not demanding our own way, but looking towards others and saying, what do they need? How can I build them up? That's what the first six verses were all about. It told us it's love and it's self-sacrifice. And who's the model of that? Jesus. Jesus didn't please himself, okay? But instead, he did what he did for the sake of the Father and for, for us, right? And then not just Christ, but the scriptures also teach this, right? And so that's what we saw last time. Now, all we have left is the second command, which is to welcome or accept each other. Now, if we keep both of these, if we accept each other and we please each other, then we will bear each other's weaknesses. And if we bear each other's weaknesses, then we will pursue peace with each other, which is what chapter 14 told us to do. And if we pursue peace with each other, then we will fulfill Christ's desire and command 
for us to love each other and be united. So with all that, we can get into this. As we pick up where we left off last time, let me point out again that both the first section and the second section have the same flow of thought, which makes it really easy to follow, and it makes it easy for note takers as well. So Paul begins with a command, then after the command, he points to Jesus as the example. After he points to Jesus, he then goes to the scriptures, specifically the Old Testament, and then he closes with a prayer wish or a benediction. Okay, so if we think of that back to what we saw last week, right, what he did is he gave us the command to please each other rather than ourselves, and then he told us Christ, as the example, did not please himself, but he did what he did for the Father and for us. Then he went to the scripture, he quoted Psalm 69, 9, and then told us the scriptures were given for our instruction so that we would grow in hope, encouragement, and endurance. And then he closed with the benediction where he prayed that God would give us hope, endurance, and encouragement so that we would be united in mind and united in voice, right? So the first six verses followed that pattern. Command, Christ, Scripture, benediction. Same thing's going to happen starting in verse 7. Okay, so look at the first part of verse 7 to see the command. Paul writes this. He says, therefore, welcome one another. Okay, that's the command. That is the second thing we must do if we are going to carry each other's weaknesses, if we are going to bear each other's burdens. We're to welcome each other. Now, earlier I said that the command is to accept each other, where this says welcome. Look, I think a better translation would be accept, okay? This word in Greek means more than welcome. It includes welcoming, but again, it means more than that, okay? What this word means is it means to receive these people into your circle of people. You are not to treat them like second-class citizens or give them outsider status. You don't treat them like they're your sort of friends, and then the people who agree with you on everything are your real friends. And so there's this distinction between your halfway friends and full friends. No, you don't do that. People can tell. People can tell when there is a clique that they are excluded from. They could tell that when they try to get in, they could tell if they're not wanted. Okay, So welcoming people or accepting people, it lets them in. There's no wall. There's no barrier that you put up. Instead, you treat them like they're your family. And that should make sense because in the church, they are your family. Are they not? That's what the church is. Okay, If a person has called on Jesus as Lord and has covenanted with you in your local church then this person is your family. They might keep the Passover. They might wear a yarmulke. They might not do any labor on Saturday. They might not eat a lot of food that you like to eat. You might see there's no purpose to any of those things that they're doing, but that person is still your family, and you are still to accept that person like family. Now, that was the problem going on in the Roman church. I don't think that's a problem here. Honestly, I don't think anyone cares that I keep the Passover, unless there's secret little meetings we're going to get him for keeping that Passover. I, I don't think that's happening here, right? I don't think that's our problem here. So let me make it more real and give an example that might be a problem for us. Some of us know the Word of God a lot better than others. Okay, Some of us not only read the Bible, but we read hefty books on doctrine. We read books on biblical marriage. We read books on biblical counseling, which really teaches us how to apply the Bible to all aspects of our lives. Okay, And you might say, well, what's the problem with that? Nothing in and of itself. But these people who do this, let's call them theonerds. Okay? They're nerds of theology. So theonerds. I am a theonerd. 
Okay? I love being a theo nerd. So again, what's the problem? Well, the problem is we theo nerds like hanging out with other theo nerds. Why? Because we could get deep. Okay? We could talk about the finer points of theology. We know that no one in our group is going to say something dumb. Well, they might, but it's unlikely. Okay? We know that no one in our group is going to spit out some, some cultural psychobabble that they heard from Dr. Phil where they're trying to excuse their sin. We don't have to worry about that in our theonerd group. We know that we won't have to tone down our conversation because some people might not understand the words we're using. But here's the problem. If we get together and all we're doing is nerding out, then we exclude the vast majority of our brothers and our sisters. And let's be real. I'm going to just speak from the heart. As a theonerd, my flesh does not want other folks to interrupt our time as theonerds. I don't want to have to explain every vocabulary term that I say. I don't want to have to deal with somebody saying something unbiblical to where now I have to gently correct it and it takes time away from what we are really trying to talk about. In other words, when other folks come in, they're, they're cramping our style. And it's, but here's the thing. In a true sense, they are the ones who are weaker in the faith because they just don't know as much about the Bible. They don't know as much as the theo nerd. And so if the theo nerds say, okay, come and hang out with us, <clears throat> but we keep our conversation lofty, and we're like, well, where do you place yourself? Are you a superlapsarian? No, I disagree, sir. I'm an infralapsarian. People are going to be like, what the heck are you guys talking about? I thought you guys don't speak in tongues here, right? <laughs> and, then, and then what's going to happen is you're going to feel like you don't belong, especially since we're not defining terms. And the next time you're going to exclude yourself. And then I'll be able to say, well, I didn't exclude them. They excluded themselves. But at the end of the day, isn't that what the theo nerds might actually want in their heart of hearts? Okay? See, instead, what we should do is we should help people carry their weakness. We should include people in most of what we do. How else are they going to learn? I didn't know what I know now the moment I became saved. I had to learn it. I'd ha I had to have teachers. Well, so do other people. How else are they going to learn? We need to take the extra time to explain to people what certain biblical concepts mean. We need to slow down and show them what it looks to live it out. They don't know. Right? They don't know they need people to disciple them. We need to be patient with other people. Because think about it. They have had a lifetime of the world's philosophy passively dumped in their head. Think about that. They weren't out there trying to be worldly. It's just what happens being born in this world. It's passively been dumped in their head. And so it's going to take time for them to empty that baggage and replace it with the word of God. And it's the church's duty to help them with that. Okay, that's what we're being called to do. Okay, and so if the church is a family, then those who, let's say, are stronger in the word, they got to help those who aren't as strong in the word. Okay, look, for you theo nerds, I'm just going to put it out there for you. The only place you're ever going to get to talk theology in depth without slowing down is seminary. Because in seminary, the only people there are people who either want to be scholars or pastors. And that's okay, because guess what? Seminary is not the church, but this is the church. So theo nerds don't have the option to be an exclusive group of elite wannabe theo scholars, okay? That's just not what we're able to do. And you know one thing that I find really sad? Is there are entire churches, entire churches, that have the elite theo nerd mentality. What I mean is you have churches that don't want newcomers showing up unless that person's already a theo nerd that subscribes to their 400-year-old their, uh, uh, confession. They'll want them to come, 
Okay, it's just sheep transfer from another church. But they don't want to deal with the new convert that still thinks like the world. They don't want to have to figure out how to show hospitality to visitors, which includes explaining the big words and showing them where everything is in the church, right? They don't want to have to put hours of discipleship into someone who knows little because it's far easier to sharpen your iron with somebody who knows what you know. It takes more work to pour into the person who knows less. And so what happens is a lot of these churches become filled with stuffy people. They end up having a lifted nose against their community and the poor within their community. You look at their churches, there's no thought of outreach, no thought of a mercy ministry. There's not really much evangelism going on. There's little thought of the Great Commission, no sending of missionaries or anything like that. Instead, their attention is directed to, again, if for some churches it'll be a 400-year-old statement of faith, for some it might just be tulip or whatever it might be, but they are devoted to that. And these churches tend to get no bigger than 30 to 60 people, 60s on the high end. And then what they do is they pat themselves on the back and reassure themselves that they're small because they're faithful. Well, we're the ones holding the true line. Everybody else is just a compromiser. And listen, a lot of other churches out there are compromisers. In fact, probably most are. It's because they compromise true doctrine and they feed their people spoiled milk rather than biblical meat. That's fresh. Okay? But that doesn't mean you become a, a, a stuffy, uh, small church that's just small for the sake, like because you're excluding people, right? A healthy church is going to feed people the meat, but they're also going to evangelize their community. They're going to see to the care of widows and orphans, people who might not know as much as, uh, of the Bible as you, but they'll pour into them. They'll give attention to the poor and the downcast, and they will support the Great Commission. In fact, they're going to see the health of their own church as a means to that end, the Great Commission, that the stronger we are as a local church, then the more likely we can send missionaries or support missionaries. That's the whole reason Paul wrote Romans, to fix that church of its weakness so that they could send him to Spain. A healthy church will genuinely welcome visitors and be happy that they're here. We'll show them that we're glad that they're here. A healthy church will see that it is a privilege that God gives us, that we could take people who know very little about the Bible, people who think like the world, and we could turn it around to where they grow and they become more mature. And then guess what? They can now do the same for others. A healthy church isn't going to scoff at youth ministry because of all the ways it's done wrong by other churches. Instead, they will see it as an opportunity to come alongside parents and offer a robust discipleship for our teens. You want to know why? Because that is the nexus point where the culture is hitting hard, is the next generation, right? They're the ones who have these questions, and let's face it, a lot of parents aren't right now equipped to deal with the onslaught. So it's good for the church to come alongside and help and create and build into these teens, pour into them, so that their faith will be strong when they go to college, Okay, that is what a healthy church will do. We won't scoff at it and say, oh, other churches do that. No, no. And listen, churches that tend, that, that do this stuff, that focus on evangelizing the community and focus on the Great Commission and focus on discipleship, they are churches that grow in maturity. And if the Lord wills, they grow in size. Okay, they grow in impact. They then start planting other churches and they do start sending missionaries. And you know what's interesting? In most cases, their community starts to respect them. Not because they're compromisers, but the community sees that they actually do what Jesus says. And those good works at times will give you a good reputation with outsiders. Okay? 
And so in all of that, in the healthy church, right, the world will know they are Christians by their love, as Jesus said in John 13, 35. Now, I just described two very different kinds of Reformed churches. One literally acts like modern-day Pharisees. They think they're the Kahel Yahweh, the, the chosen of God. I think they're more like the frozen chosen, okay? The other kind of Reformed church that I mentioned, they never forget what the Bible says. They never forget that the church is here for a reason. It is the body of Christ called to do the work of Christ until the gospel reaches every single nation, tribe, and tongue. That is what the church is here for. And if we're the body of Christ carrying on the work of Christ, how did Christ deal with people? Did he pour into people that knew less than him? Was he patient with people? Did he evangelize? Did he see to the needs of widows and orphans? Yes, he did all that. Okay, So we are called to do what, what Christ does, and we're to be his means to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. So what that means is the deep theology, the expositional preaching, the biblical counseling, the mercy ministry, the youth ministry, all the discipleship, all this excellent stuff. It is a means to serve the end of the Great Commission. That is ultimately what it's about. The end is the salvation of souls and the completion of Christ's mission given to us, which includes saving souls here and there, right? That is why we exist. Those who are of the frozen chosen tend to see knowledge as the end rather than the means. And that's the problem. That's the problem. They got it wrong and it shows in what they do. Now, some of you might be thinking, where's this big rabbit trail coming from? Like, who ticked him off this week? Well, that happens every week. But that's really not what, that's really not what this is about. It, it, the command to accept each other really got me thinking about why churches are divided, and specifically why sometimes you have people with the best theology who are the most ineffective churches. It's because they're not accepting others. They're not bearing the weaknesses. Although they don't want to bear the weaknesses of the weak. They want everybody in their church to be strong. But here's the thing. Our text is telling us, please others rather than yourselves. It's telling us to welcome them, accept them, deal with them as family. That changes the way a church looks and acts. Okay? And so you could tell by what a church does, you could tell by their attitude what kind of church they are. Okay? And if we're going to be a church, and let's just be real, since we are a church that prioritizes doctrine and expositional preaching, I think we always face the temptation to become a clique of theo-nerds that want to exclude those who know less because it's so much easier if you don't have to teach people. Okay? That's a temptation that churches like us will have to face. So how do we make sure we never become like that? By obeying this command. Please others and accept or welcome each other. This entire section, Romans 14, 1 to 15, 13, begins with this command. Look back at 14, verse 1. I'll have it up there, or you could look in your own Bible. It's just you know a few verses above where you're at. <clears throat> but in 14, verse 1, Paul says, welcome or accept, same word. Welcome anyone who's weak in faith. But don't argue about disputed matters. That's the command, right? To welcome each other and don't argue about this stuff, okay? It's almost the same command in 15 verse 7 that we just started with, okay? We're to accept people who are weak in faith. Now, in 15 verse 1, which we did last week, it tells us we who are strong, we have an obligation. We have a debt to bear the weaknesses of those who are weak. And again, how do you do that? 
by pleasing them, by accepting them, by looking to their interest rather than your own, and by treating them like they're real brothers and sisters in the Lord. Not just like, like we say that, we're brothers and sisters, but then we don't act like it. No, it's got to be real. That is how any church will remain united. And that's how the world will know we are disciples of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, everything I just said there should be reason enough for any Christian to obey this command, to accept each other so we stay united so the world knows Jesus is Lord. That should be enough. But Paul does not leave it there. He gave the command. Now he's going to point to Christ as the example. Look at the second half of verse 7. Paul tells us we are to welcome and accept each other, quote, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. So I want that to sink in, okay? What excuse do you or I, what excuse does anyone have not to accept or welcome your weaker brothers or sisters in Christ? Did Christ have to accept you? Were you just this grand thing where Christ is like, man, I need that guy to follow me? Were you worthy of his sacrifice for you? I mean no disrespect by this. But if you think Christ owed you salvation, and if you think you're the kind of person that deserves to be saved, then you are not saved. You just aren't. You do not understand the gospel. Okay? Only a perfect and sinless person deserves to be saved. Is that you? Romans 1, 2, and 3 made it clear that everyone has sinned and has fallen short of the, of the glory of God. If I've done this before, I'm going to do it again. If we just take the Ten Commandments, which is a fraction of God's moral commandments, and we take only six of the Ten Commandments, how do you think you hold up as, as a good person that deserves salvation? Have you ever told a lie before? Well, you know you have. What does that make you? A liar. Have you ever stolen before? You know you have. What does that make you? A thief. Have you ever lusted for someone before? Jesus said that's adultery in the heart. Have you ever been so angry with someone that even for a moment you thought you could just kill them? Jesus said that's murder in the heart. And by the way, what that means is God does not just judge you for what you do. He judges you for what you think. And you might think that's unfair, but it's not. If we could plug a wire into your head and put all your thoughts on the big screen, nobody would be your friend. And your family would disown you if they could see what's in your mind and what's in your heart. Thank God they can't. And that's another sinner looking at what's in your mind and being disturbed. You take God, who's perfectly holy, and he sees what's in your heart and your mind, it looks infinitely worse. Have you ever used God's name in vain before? Like cussing with his name. The Bible calls that blasphemy. Have you ever dishonored your parents before? The Bible calls you a rebel. Now, we just looked at six commandments, and it's clear that everyone here is a lying, thieving, blasphemous, rebellious, adulterous murderer at heart. That's us. And so, do you still think you're a good person that deserves salvation? No. <laughs> Here's the thing. You, you, do you think the holy and righteous judge of the universe who hates sin more than we ever could is going to look at you and say, what a great person? No. You know you're guilty. And he definitely knows you're guilty, and he's not going to lie and say that you're not, okay? Now, you might be saying, but Hitler, or the guy who shoots up the school is worse than me. It doesn't matter if Hitler's worse than you. You're not being compared to Hitler. You're being compared to God's requirement. You could always find someone worse. 
Hitler could find someone worse. Stalin, you know, and then Stalin could be like Mao. And then Mao, well, I don't think there's anybody worse yet. But the point is, you could always find somebody who's worse. That's not who you're being compared to. You're being compared to God's standard, and you've missed the mark. But here's the beautiful thing. That is Paul's point. You and I are exactly the type of people who do not deserve to be saved. And yet what is so incredibly remarkable is that God saved us anyway. Well, he saved you if you believe, if you're a believer, right? That's true for only those who have received Christ by faith. What does it mean to receive Christ by faith? Just in case you're wondering, it means that you turn away from your sins and you turn or you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the only person who will do that is the person who realizes his or her guilt and realizes his helplessness before God. That person understands that he or she deserves to be condemned, but that person's heart melts when he or she learns that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to take the penalty of us, to die for us, so that we would be saved, that he would pay our penalty, so that we would never have to pay our penalty, that Jesus would live this perfect life and give us the credit of that perfect life, so that when we believe, God credits us with Jesus' righteousness and credited Jesus with our wickedness, which is why he paid our, our debt on the cross. And so now when the Father looks at us, he sees us as forgiven of our sin because our debt is paid and he sees us as perfectly righteous because Jesus gave us his report card, right? He gave that to us, right? And then to know that God did all of this in order to make Jesus the preeminent one, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and God. And yet... God desired to make us the adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus so that we can share in his glory, so that God would declare us all as sons, meaning that we all inherit the promises together. Now, what does all that mean? That means Jesus accepted you, okay? That means Jesus accepted you. Just like Romans 5 verse 6 says, it says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for those who were good. He died for those who were helpless and ungodly. Okay? That is him accepting us, just as Christ accepted us. And listen, once he accepts you, you now live for him. Consider what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now think about that. In other words, because Christ accepted us, Paul's saying we no longer live for ourselves, but Jesus lives in us, and this now makes it to where we live by faith in the Son of God. That's what it says. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, How does all that relate to what Paul is saying here in Romans? He's telling us to bear the weaknesses of the weak. Okay, that means bear the weaknesses of those with hyperactive consciences or of those who don't know as much as you or those who come from a different culture. Bear that. How? By accepting them. And if you do this, you're imitating Jesus. Okay, because he accepted you. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Why? Because we live by faith in the Son of God. This is going to sound harsh, but I don't know any other way to say this. 
You cannot say you follow Christ if you do not accept those in the church who are different than you. You just can't because he accepted you. He accepted you, right? Even if they know less of the Bible, even if they struggle with more sins than you do, Christ accepted you. And the text says you are to accept them just as. That word just as, kathos or kathos, important word. You're to accept them just as Christ accepted you. Look, your sin looks a trillion times worse to God than your weaker brother's weaknesses look to you. And yet God, through Christ, accepted you nevertheless. So go and do likewise. Do what our Lord does. Now, in all that, because that's been very general, we have to keep Paul's specific context in mind here. And then later we could principalize it to other things. If you remember, because I've told you seven or five or six times already, that the context here in Romans 14 and 15 is about Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus who have very different cultural backgrounds. The Jewish believers, their background is to obey the Old Testament laws concerning kosher food and Sabbath days. The Gentile background is to eat anything and treat every day alike. Now, the Gentiles in this church were forcing their way on the Jews, which was causing some of these Jewish believers to sin against God because now they were violating their consciences. Other Jewish believers were like, I'm not going to violate my conscience. I refuse to bend. And so you're putting me in a position where now I got to leave this church. Okay, that's a huge problem. Now, Paul, in this section, went to great lengths to show us that theologically or objectively, the Gentiles are right. There is no food that's unclean anymore. You do not have to keep kosher. And every day is alike. Paul says that in chapter 14. He makes it clear. But what the Gentiles were wrong on is they're wrong in trying to force Jewish believers to abandon their heritage. The New Testament encourages Jewish believers to still be Torah observant Jews. Jews don't stop being Jews because they become Christians. Okay, I don't know where somebody got that silly idea, but it's straight from the pit of hell. That is not what the scripture says, okay? And if a Jew lives in a Jewish area, they definitely should be more Torah observant. But here's the thing, it's not a requirement, okay? At times, Paul said to those not under the law, I'll become like those not under the law, right? Which would be impossible if he had to keep the Torah, okay? And so so that being said, it's not a requirement, but it is an encouragement, okay? Now, Here's the thing. If a Jew eats non-kosher food, like I tend to like all-you-could-eat shrimp, they're not in sin. They're not in sin, okay? It's their liberty to do that. But the Jewish Christians in Rome, they thought it would be a sin. And that's what makes them the weaker brother. They weren't the weaker brother because they follow the Torah. I keep Passover, I'm not the weaker brother. They're the weaker brother because they thought they had to. And they thought if they didn't, they would be in sin. That's what makes them weaker in this case. And so Paul has been telling the Gentile brothers not to force their way on them. Don't put pork chops next to the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. You are excluding these folks. You're forcing them to leave. That's what was happening at the potluck. Back then, they'd have a potluck every Lord's Day. And then the Lord's Supper would be at the center of that meal. If you got pork chops and sausages and just whatever bacon, start naming pork products, right? Um, And not turkey bacon, but anyhow, if you start having all that stuff next to the Lord's Supper, kosher observant Jews would be like, you've tainted this whole thing. We now can't obey Jesus and partake of of the Lord's Supper. What Paul is saying is like, may it never be. 
carry the burden of those who are weaker, who have that hyperactive conscience. How? Instead of bringing your non-kosher food, have kosher food. You're the ones who believe you could eat anything. It's not going to hurt you to eat kosher for one day out of the week so that your Jewish brothers could worship with you. That is what it means to accept them like Christ accepted you. That's what it means to carry their weakness, bear their burdens. Okay? And in the Roman church, something that easy, that simple would have solved this huge problem. Okay? So given that that was the context, everything Paul says in the rest of our text relates to this Jewish-Gentile context. If you don't have it in mind, <clears throat> verses 8 through 13 make no sense. So that's why I had to give you the context one more time. Okay? So let's look at verses 8 and the first half of verse 9. This is where Paul now starts to, to, to get into this, right? He says, For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Now, this whole statement here is profound, but I think it's really easy to miss what he's saying if you read it fast. And I'm just going to tell you straight up that both the CSB and the ESV and most other English translations, they try to smooth out verse 9 in English, and by doing so, they make it actually hard to see what Paul is saying. And that's one reason why I always carefully go through the, through the Greek first, because I want to see what Paul's saying rather than just rely on my translation. And actually what we have here, when you look at it closely, is we have two parallel statements in verse 8 and verse 9. Okay, in verse 8, you have, at least in the second part of verse 8, you have one statement, and then in the first part of verse 9, and they follow the same exact pattern. But you can't see it because what of our translations do to verse 9. So let me tell you what the pattern goes like, and then I'll show it and repeat it as we go through it. The pattern goes like this. Paul is going to say something about Christ, specifically that he became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews. Okay, that's what he's telling us. And then he's going to say this was done on behalf of something, in order to cause something. That'll be the second half of verse 8. And then for verse 9, it's also behalf of some, on behalf of something else, to cause something else. So Christ becomes a servant to Israel for two reasons. On behalf of X, to cause Y, and then again on behalf of A, to cause B. If that didn't make any sense, I apologize. It's John Weigel's fault. No, I'm just kidding. It's all my fault. I just tried to cast it on somebody else. But hopefully you'll see it as I go through this and explain this a little better. Okay? Now... The reason why I'm saying that is people wrongly look at this passage as if it's saying Christ became a servant for the Jews and then Christ became a servant for the Gentiles. It, it doesn't say that. In fact, it is only saying that Christ became a servant for the Jews here. But that is being done for two united purposes. One will include the Gentiles. So Christ becomes a servant for the Jews, but those two united purposes, like he does this for two reasons and two causes, those two causes should fix the divisions in the Roman church between the Jews and the Gentiles. So let's look at this. In verse 8, Paul starts, he says, For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised. The first word is for, which ties it back to verse 7. It grounds it, or, or what that means is it gives proof or support to what he said in verse 7. In verse 7, he says we must accept each other because Christ accepted us. Well, now he's going to support that idea. He's going to support that idea that Christ accepted us by telling us how Christ accepted us. How did he accept us? Let me read it again. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised. That's how Christ accepted us, 
by becoming the servant of the Jews. Now, you might say, that doesn't make any sense to me. It has to be unpacked. And that's why he gives the two parallel statements to unpack it. Okay, So the rest of verse 8 and the first part of verse 9 will show us this. Christ became a servant to the circumcised on behalf of two things, for the purpose of two things. So let's look at it. First, Paul says Christ did this, quote, on behalf of God's truth. Okay, you see that? Okay, Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth. Apparently, God said this would be the case. At some point, God said the Messiah will become a servant to Israel. And if God says it, it must be true. So Christ came as the servant to Israel on behalf of God's truth. Now, you might say, where does God say this? I shall show you. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3 is where it starts. God refers to Israel in Isaiah 49, verse 3, as the servant of the Lord. It's very interesting. It says this. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And of course, Israel is supposed to be the blessing to the nations. Israel as a nation is God's servant. They're his corporate servant. Israel as a whole was also called God's son multiple times in the Old Testament. So Israel's God's servant. Israel is God's son. And through Israel, the nations were to one day be blessed. But that sounds weird, doesn't it? Because something went wrong. Part of the plan, actually. Israel as the corporate servant failed. Israel as the corporate son failed. Okay, so now Israel needed to be saved. A a damned Israel cannot save the Gentiles. There has to be a saved Israel through whom that would happen. So just two verses later in Isaiah 49, God mentions the servant again. But now this servant is in Israel. Now the servant isn't a whole nation. The servant's an individual. Look at Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. It says, And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and God is my strength, he says. It is, or God is my strength. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's right here. Did you catch that? The individual servant will bring Israel, the corporate servant, back to God. He will restore Israel, but he's also going to save the nations, okay? He's going to save the Gentiles. How? How does he do it? By being God's servant to Israel. Now, this whole servant of the Lord thing continues in Isaiah. And in chapter 53, that's a passage almost all of us know. Isaiah brings back up the servant again and tells us how the servant accomplishes this. And Isaiah is speaking as if Israel rejected the servant, but really God was behind all of this. That God would crush the servant for our iniquities. Our chat, or his chastisement, or our chastisement would be on him, right? By his wounds, we would be healed. He would be a guilt offering to God. He would die for our sins. And then the end of the chapter specifies, though, that he would still receive a people for himself, which implies he will come back to life for him to be able to see that. So by his death for us and by his resurrection. And again, this is to redeem Israel. And through the redemption of Israel, then he could also restore the nations. The nations could be cleansed. So when Paul 
getting back to Romans, says that Jesus became a servant of Israel on behalf of God's truth, this is what he's referring to. Now, I said that, that Jesus became such a servant to Israel on behalf of something for a purpose, right? And we're going to see that twice. So first we see he's the servant on behalf of God's truth. But what's the purpose of that? The last part of verse 8 tells us. It says to confirm the promises to the fathers or the patriarchs. So the Messiah was to come as a servant to Israel, to save Israel in order to confirm the promises to the patriarchs. Now, Paul already covered this in Romans 11 when he said that God would save ethnic Israel in the end because he says the gift and calling of God are irrevocable. He said that ethnic Israel right now is your enemy on account of the gospel, but they're beloved on account of the fathers or the patriarchs. I don't know how people are able to tweak Romans 11 and turn Israel into the church. It is crazy talk. Okay, What he's saying there is clear. How could the church be the enemy of the gospel? No, Israel is the enemy of the gospel, the enemy of you, okay? But on behalf of the patriarchs, they're beloved by God. So God made these promises that the Messiah restores a remnant of Israel now, but will, so that way a true Israel still exists, by which the Gentiles could then be saved through. But also there will be a later restoration of, of all of Israel, those who, who are alive. So that's what Romans 11 was showing us, and Paul is quickly alluding back to that. Now, here's the thing. Okay, the, the, becoming the servant of, of Israel to save Israel was the expectation not just of Isaiah, but other prophets. The prophet Micah, who was Isaiah's contemporary, puts it this way in Micah chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. He says, He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Why? He says, You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. God has to keep his promises. And he can't pull a bait and switch and say, I'm keeping the promises to you by redefining you into somebody else. That just doesn't work, okay? So this is why Christ had to become the servant of the Lord to Israel. Now, that fact should make the Gentile Christians in Rome pause, before they get too judgmental on their Jewish brothers in Christ. Okay? We're to accept each other because Jesus accepted us. But even more than that, right? Even more than that, Christ became a servant to the Jews. And if Christ is the servant of Israel, then who do the Roman Gentiles think they are if they're willing to push the Jews out of their church over kosher food and Sabbaths? That just doesn't make any sense. Jesus serves Israel. How could his followers do the opposite? That's Paul's point at this point. And honestly, I say this as a lament. If only the church throughout the ages would have understood this, if they would have paid more attention to Romans. Instead, they, they overread Galatians and missed what Paul was saying here in Romans. So much would have been different. Jews today, by and large, see Christianity as its greatest persecutor. That should have never been the case. But anyhow, what I've said so far is only the first half of what he's saying about how Christ accepted us, okay? Again, he becomes a servant to the circumcised on behalf of now a second thing, for the purpose of a second thing. Look at the first half of verse 9. He writes this. He says, and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. This is where the translation smooths it out in a way that's not helpful. So I'm going to give you a literal translation. What this literally says is, and on behalf 
of the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Exact same form as is verse 8. Okay, so Jesus became a servant to the circumcised on behalf of the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Okay, that is what's being said. He becomes this servant so that they, the Gentiles, can also glorify God. In other words, the only way that Gentiles could be saved is if the Messiah of Israel served and saved Israel. Because it's through Israel that the nations are to be blessed. If there's no Israel, then there's no channel through which the nations get blessed. Okay, And and, and so you go back to Genesis 22 verse 18. The first part of it, God promises Abraham. He says, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. His corporate offspring was Israel. But as Paul tells us in Galatians, his singular offspring is Christ. And Romans 11 already told us how this works. Gentiles who believe on Jesus, the servant of Israel, they get grafted onto the tree of Israel, along with the natural Israelites who believe in Jesus. So you have natural Israelites, the remnant, who believes in Jesus. All the Gentiles who believe, they get grafted onto the same tree. But that tree is Israel. Ephesians chapter 2 says, You who were far off, who were separated from the commonwealth of Israel, you who had no part in Israel, have now been brought near through Christ. Okay, so the Gentiles who believe actually enter Israel, its commonwealth, as Abraham's spiritual sons and daughters. Okay, and they share this as co-heirs with Abraham's natural sons and daughters that believe on Christ. Okay, and the Old Testament anticipated this since Isaiah 49 showed that Jesus, as the individual servant, saves the corporate servant of Israel and then as a result is able to save the Gentiles as well. Okay, that is what's being said. And so Paul's point then, if we put it together, it's twofold. First, Jesus bore the weaknesses of Israel as its servant on behalf of God's promises. And therefore, Gentile believers should also bear the weaknesses of their Jewish brothers and sisters. And then second, Jesus bore the weakness of Israel as its servant on behalf of the Gentiles themselves. Since this was the way that God promised he was going to save them. He would not save the Gentiles separate from Israel. Okay? The promises were made to Israel. So God has to save them with Israel by grafting them into those promises. Because of this, it says that the Gentiles can, quote, glorify God for his mercy. And again, you could read by this too fast, but there's something worth noting here. The word for mercy in Greek is the equivalent of the Hebrew word chesed, which is God's covenant love for Israel. Okay, God's covenant love for Israel was chesed. He doesn't have that for the nations apart from Israel, right? When you read the Old Testament, chesed, I know it's fun to say, was, was his covenant love for Israel. What Paul is saying is the Gentiles who believe get to participate in that special covenant love that was for Israel. So if, last time I'm going to say, if chesed is only available to covenant Israel, then there has to be an Israel for Gentiles to join in order to get that, okay, I lied, chesed or merciful love. That's the last time. So that's the only way you get it. It's by entering into that covenant community that God offers it to. So the point of all of this was to correct in the church of Rome, Gentile arrogance against the Jewish believers. And the way Paul laid it out here is just one more thing that should make us all united. 
It shows us that we are one body grafted together into one holy nation. And together we receive all the promises. Okay? It reminds us that Christ accepted us. Christ bore our weaknesses on the cross. In fact, Christ became this servant to Israel in order to save Jews and Gentiles together. So why in the world, in that church, were they breaking that unity that Christ created? Would they really do this over Sabbath days and food? For real? I mean, these things are liberties. So he's saying bear with each other, please each other, accept each other. That's how we maintain the unity that Christ purchased for us. And listen, to resist that is to actually resist the gospel itself since the gospel is what brings us into this unity with each other. You break that unity, you're saying, I don't care about the gospel because this is what the gospel does. And so we should not be doing that. So at this point, we have seen Paul unleash the big guns by appealing to Jesus as the example for why we need to obey the command to accept each other. Next, Paul's going to appeal to the scripture, which in this case is the Old Testament. And this is why we tell you, you guys got to know the Old Testament. In fact, what we just read makes no sense if you don't know the Old Testament. Okay, so command, Christ, and now the next big guns is the scripture. Okay, Christ is the big, big guns, and then scripture is the next big, big guns, right? And so he's going to appeal to to scripture here. And what Paul does here is very similar to what he does in other parts of Romans, where he'll quote multiple Old Testament passages. In this case, he's going to quote four of them, and he's going to string them together into a family of texts that make a bigger point than each of them would make on their own. In fact, he, he makes them speak beyond their original context because he's putting them together. Okay? And the way that he links them is he links them on the basis of a single word. All these passages share a single word together. They share the word Gentiles, or in the Greek, ethnos, or in Hebrew, goyim. Okay? All of them have that word. Okay? On the basis of that word, Paul pearl strings them together and makes a family of these four texts. Now, sometimes people wonder, why would Paul and other New Testament authors do this? I'm telling you, they do it a lot. This was what my master thesis was on. And so I'm not going to bore you, but he's using two rabbinical uh, forms of, of exegesis here. Okay, I will bore you. The first one's called Gezer Shuan, and then the second one's called Binyan Ab Mikachab Echad, which I know you all know what that means. And so, man, if I put all that time into studying this, I'm at least going to get to say it. Anyhow, so... He used those two uh, techniques to, to do this pearl stringing and to build this family. So let's look at the string of passages. The rest of verse 9 says this. It says, as it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. Okay, now notice that Paul starts off with, as it is written. This is letting us know that what he just told us about Christ is what the Old Testament promised all along. Okay, that, that, that Christ would be a servant of Israel on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises and on behalf of the Gentiles so that they could glorify God, right? He says, as it is written, so you should expect to find this in the Old Testament, okay? Now, the quotation he gives here is from Psalm 1849, where David says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praise to your name. In the original context, King David is thanking God for granting him kingship and saving him from all his enemies. He then says he's not only going to praise God among Israel, but he's going to praise God among the Gentiles. And as Israel's chief songwriter, he wants the nations to join in those songs. Well, look, here's the thing. 
Paul's taking this and expanding it beyond David's context because we know that David was a type or shadow that points to greater realities in Christ. So what is true of David in a smaller sense is going to be even more true of Jesus in the greatest sense. David won victories over human enemies. Jesus won victory over sin and death, which are the two greatest enemies that plague all of mankind, right? So in David's, and so in David's greater son, okay, in Christ, Jesus, in the Messiah, Jewish believers like myself actually get to do what David dreamt of. David here dreams of being able to sing praises to God among the Gentiles. I get to sing of God with Gentiles together every Sunday morning. And I want you to think about that. Every Sunday in this church, we are witnessing the fulfillment of prophecy. I don't know if you've ever realized that. When we're singing, it's more than just praising God. We're also fulfilling prophecy. We're seeing it fulfilled. It is a beautiful thing to behold. Okay? So David's wish, it's fulfilled in Christ. Well, Paul doesn't stop there. His next quotation comes in verse 10. He writes this. He says, again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. Now here he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. That's the whole section of Deuteronomy where Moses prophesied that Israel would fall away from God and they would temporarily be cursed. But then God would later save them. He would restore them. He would circumcise their hearts and he would save them from both their sin and he would save them from the nations. He would destroy their adversaries of the nations. But then he commands that the Gentiles would rejoice with Israel. Okay, so that's a direct prophecy then that not all the nations or Gentiles would be destroyed. Some would be saved and some would rejoice with Israel over the fact that God defeated sin as well as the wicked nations. And again, Paul's connecting this with the previous verse because of the word Gentiles, okay? He does this again in verse 11. He writes, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let the peoples praise him. Here he quotes Psalm 117, verse 1, which is a very short psalm that calls on the nations or the Gentiles to sing praises to God because of how good he's been to Israel. So he's good to Israel, and then God's commanding the Gentiles, sing to me because of this goodness. Well, look, here's the thing. God's goodness to Israel gives Gentiles cause to sing to God together with Israel because God is saving them through Israel's Messiah, and he makes them one body. And then finally, verse 12, Paul quotes one more. He quotes a key messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Paul writes this. He says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will hope in him. Now, this chapter of Isaiah Isaiah 11 is all about the messianic era, the restoration of all things, like when wolves and lambs lie down to each other and the lion eats straw. It's the full restoration that the Messiah will bring, okay? And we know that comes in stages. We're in part of it now. The fullness will come when Jesus returns. But, but the interesting thing is, what he's saying is this is all linked to the root of Jesse, or more accurately, the shoot of Jesse. A shoot is a branch that comes from him. So Jesse was the father of King David. David, right, uh, or God promised to David that the Messiah would come from him. So in that sense, the Messiah is a shoot that comes from Jesse. And it tells us he will appear to rule the Gentiles. Now, if you were to just stop right there, 
in the Old Testament, that can mean a lot of things. Because the Messiah would rule the nations according to Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 2. He would rule them with an iron rod and crush them in their wickedness. So a lot of passages about ruling the Gentiles speak of judgment. That was one of the big expectations. And by the way, that will happen. The book of Revelation, we spent three years in it, lets us know that all the nations are going to unite against Christ in the end. And he's going to destroy them with that sword that comes out of his mouth. He's going to speak a word and they will be judged and destroyed by him. But what this prophecy in Isaiah is letting us know is that not all the Gentiles are going to be ruled by Christ as judgment. Some of them are going to be saved. Some of them, in fact, multitudes are going to hope in the Messiah. The Gentiles will hope in him. And what's really interesting is in the Greek, the words for the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, that word rises is the word resurrection, the word for resurrection. The Messiah becomes the hope and ruler of the Gentiles through the resurrection, which is what the rest of the scripture tells us anyway. It was all there in the Old Testament all along. Now, what is Paul's point with all of this by uniting these passages? Well, in his uniting of these passages, he's telling the Romans that what they are experiencing, Jews and Gentiles together worshiping God through Jesus the Messiah every Sunday, he's saying that is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, there are other Old Testament passages Paul could have picked, but he chose these ones for a reason, and he pulled them from various parts of the Old Testament in a very specific way, okay? Jews back then... And today, do not order the Old Testament books the same way we do. Ours starts with Genesis and ends in in Malachi, okay? They separate the Old Testament into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the Torah, the Nevim, and the Kethubim, right? And so those are the three main divisions of the scripture. And what Paul did here is he took one text from the law, he took one text from the prophets, and he took two texts from the writings. And what he's showing is that to the Jewish believers there, right, what he's telling them is, look, the Old Testament, the whole of it, the entire Old Testament, all three sections anticipates your unity with these Gentile believers. So don't leave the Roman church. That's what he's getting at here. Don't leave the Roman church. And honestly, in my opinion, this is an indictment against my Messianic brothers that do church separately from the Gentiles. His whole point is we're fulfilling prophecy. These passages prove that. Don't separate from them. When we come together and we accept our cultural differences, nobody has to assimilate. It's beautiful when you could see natural and the wild branches together. Okay, So we could accept these differences. And by worshiping together, we display the fulfillment of prophecy through the gospel each and every week. So let's not split. So that's what he's saying to the Jews with these verses. And what he's telling the Gentiles with these same verses is, look, you're grafted in. Jesus is the servant of Israel, and he's that for your sake. So don't push Israel away. Each week, your worship of the God of Israel offers proof that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Because the Old Testament said that the Messiah of Israel would bring the Gentiles into the faith and that they would praise the Lord. And they are. And and that when the Messiah comes, the Gentiles would be joined with Israel. And they are. The church is the only place you could see this. So he's saying, help Israel see that. Okay? Instead, the church has opted for anti-Semitism. And because of that, if you ask Jews, what is the main reason Jesus can't be the Messiah? They will tell you because of anti-Semitism. Look what has happened in his name. Right? 
And that is an indictment against the church. Instead, what Paul is saying is that, listen, love the Jews, treat the Jewish Christians as true brothers and sisters, and then unbelieving Israel will look and they'll see in the church like, wait a second, what I'm seeing in these Christians, what I'm seeing in the church, is exactly what the Old Testament promises. That is what we're supposed to be painting the picture of to Israel. And it goes back to what Jesus said. The world and Israel will know we are Christians by our love. So we need to, to strive for this. Now, Paul closes this section with a benediction, just like he did the last one. He wraps it up in verse 13. He writes this. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Very simple prayer here. The God of hope. Remember, hope is not like things we wish would happen. Hope is what we know is going to happen because God promised it. God's the God of that certainty, of that hope. And so the God of hope, the God of all the promises that we firmly believe, Paul is saying, may he give us joy and peace. Now, you've heard this before. Joy means that we are content. It's contentment, not happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It comes and goes like a roller coaster. Some of it depends on what you ate in the morning, okay? Joy is there regardless. The whole world could be crumbling around you or everything could be going well, but joy is contentment in God. And that joy should also lead to peace, okay? Contentment in the Lord and being content to be at peace with brothers and sisters who differ with me on preferential matters, See, Paul is praying that God's hope, his certainty, would give us that joy, that contentment in him, because we know he's going to fulfill his promises, and because of that, we have peace with each other. That's what Paul's praying for. And he says, this happens as we believe. He says that the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace as you believe. Listen, this cannot happen apart from faith. Okay? You're not going to have this apart from faith, so believe what the word says. Read it and believe it. And then that hope, that certainty will grow in you. It will overflow into joy and peace. Why? Because it's not just you and the word alone in you, but he says you will overflow with hope by the power of what? Of who? The Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of us and writes God's word on our heart. And that happens because we're in the new covenant. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, right? And so it's that same Jesus that makes us one and the Holy Spirit living in us only helps us to do this, okay? So that pretty much ends the text and it ends this whole section and it actually ends Paul's body of the letter of Romans. The rest of Romans is just him uh, pretty much hitting some personal details, okay? So this whole section, I know it was a lot to take in, but at the end of the day, Paul solved a problem with this that was wrecking that church and it wrecks a lot of churches today. Okay? And so he gave us the way forward to solve this problem in any church, in any time, in any culture, in any place. Because disunity is a problem that happens and weakens any church. So if we were to take chapters 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, if you're looking for a list of rules, that's not what you're going to find. Instead, what you find are principles. Scholar Richard Longnecker tells us you could sum it up in five principles that if we follow these, our churches are going to be fine right? We're going to be united. First principles, he says, it, what the text says is accept those who have a weaker faith. Accept them. Don't pass judgment on issues of preference. Okay, so look at an issue and say, you know what? This isn't a matter of biblical fidelity. This is a matter of preference. I accept this person. I'm not going to judge him. 
Second, he says the weak need to stop being hypercritical of the strong. If you have a hyperactive conscience, stop judging everybody for not following your little extra rules. Okay, but at the same token, if you're strong, don't put stumbling blocks. Don't put stumbling blocks in front of the weak to make them fall. So that's the second thing. The third thing is make every effort to have peace by building each other up. Okay, the way we have peace is by building each other up, not tearing each other down. Four, those who are strong must bear the weakness of the ones who are weaker rather than seeking to please themselves. If you're thinking, you know what, I want this, but nope, I'm going to build this person up. I'm going to please them. I'm going to bear their weaknesses. That's the fourth thing. And then the fifth thing, which is the most obvious and most foundational, is to accept each other the same way Jesus accepted you. That is how we will have united churches. This would solve the differences between white and black churches that segregate. Even though they hold the same doctrines, you know, they segregate over culture and politics. These principles would solve that. This would also stop petty church splits. In his uh, expositor's commentary, R. Kent Hughes tells of two churches who lived just a few blocks apart. They shared the same doctrine, and so they merged. But that merge did not last long. They split almost right away because they could not agree on how they would recite the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. One church insisted that we have to say, forgive us of our trespasses. The other said, no, it's forgive us of our debts. And so, rather than bearing each other's weaknesses and accepting each other and pleasing each other, they split. They split over that. Is that not the dumbest thing you've ever heard? And then the local newspaper made a big joke out of it and wrote an article about it where they said one church went back to its trespasses while the other went back to its debts. I give them credit for being, I give them credit for being funny on that. But it makes Christ look like a joke. And, and so this kind of nonsense is all too common. And as I mentioned in, in the first sermon on this, this subject, in Reformed circles, this happens all the time over, do we sing hymns or do we sing contemporary songs? That is so stupid. It just is. If people would just follow these principles, these kinds of embarrassments would disappear and we would be united. So for theo-nerds like me, what does that mean? It means welcome those who don't know as much as you. For those with food allergies, include those without the same allergies into your dining out so that your circle broadens. For those who homeschool, forge deep relationships with other families that don't homeschool, right? Don't just have all the homeschoolers together and all the food allergy together and all the mountain hikers together. No, that's, I don't know where I came up with that, but... Um, <laughs> But anyway, you know, and for those who are young, get close to those who are older and vice versa. In other words, what this is telling us to do is act just like a family. Okay, in your family, you don't have the young people saying, I'm not going to talk to grandma and grandpa. Okay, or mom and dad. Everybody's integrated. Everybody's loving each other. And that's what it's supposed to be like in the church. We are a family. We're the family of God. So may we pursue peace and unity with everything that we've got. May we strive to safeguard the unity that Christ accomplished by his shed blood. May we never put our petty liberties above Christ or above church unity or above our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. It's my prayer that God will grant all of that to Sovereign Way Christian Church. Now, if there's any unbeliever here, I'll just make this real simple. I already preached the gospel earlier. We've already seen that you've fallen short of the glory of God, that you failed six of the Ten Commandments. You're not a good person. 
And one day you will stand before God and you will be judged for your sin. But as I've already said, God made a way of escape. Christ died on the cross for us. He earned perfect righteousness for us. If you just turn to him from your sins and believe on him with all your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Okay? It's that simple. You don't have to raise your hand and come up here and do some weird thing. This is between you and God. You could do this right now. And then when we're done, I want you to come and talk to me. Because then if you really have received the Lord, we need to to start talking about baptism. Okay? Uh, Because that's the first thing you're supposed to do once you've accepted Christ as Lord. And we'll gladly walk you through all that. So don't walk out of here still in your sins. If you have any questions, come talk to me after. And again, 10 minutes after this is all over. Uh, membership info meeting will be over there. But with that, we're going to pray. Worship team's going to come back up here. We're going to then take the Lord's Supper together, and then we'll, we'll close out. So let's go to the Lord.